Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 22nd, we are studying Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. Gideon has died, and Israel has already returned to the vomit of their idolatry. So who will lead the people now? One of Gideon's sons steps up to the plate and offers the people a monarchy. But it is a monarchy that ends in utter disaster. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek. Pastor Philippek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks, it's good to be with you. So, Pastor Philippek, as we get started this morning, we're coming... We're coming into one of those sections in the book of Judges that gets skipped over in Sunday school. There's several of those sections, really, but this is definitely one of them, chapter 9. And and the chapter as a whole certainly goes together. We needed to break it up simply for the sake of taking manageable sections on the radio. But as we get going here into Judges 9, into this less familiar section of Judges, give us that background, that context from those more familiar sections, particularly with Gideon, that we need to know going into this text. Sure. So up until this point, there's one big thing I want you to keep in mind, which is Judges has a very cyclical cadence to it. It has a very um, cycling rhythm to it. And the rhythm has gone like this for the last four Judges. There's peace in the land, then there starts to be a descent. Israel does what's evil in the eyes of the Lord. God punishes them by selling them into slavery under some nation, fill in the blank here, we'll fill it in here as we go along, reminding our hearers of the four different times already that they've been sold to different nations. After being sold into slavery, Israel cries out in the midst of slavery, God raises up a deliverer, and then Israel is delivered, and there's peace in the land. You can kind of do this uh, almost the the age-old saying here in the last hundred years, um, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> there's kind of that, that sort of cycle to the book of Judges. So that's important to keep in mind, because Israel has just gone into the Promised Land out of Joshua's death. I mean, Judges is about heading into the land, and finally God fulfilling His promise to his people, to give them the land flowing with milk and honey, where he will be present with them. So Judah started the the conquest off back in chapter 1, and they were given some specific instructions, which we'll get into later, which they did not fulfill. And because they didn't fulfill those instructions, which, like I said, we'll talk about later, uh, we've already seen uh, them being sold into... um, slavery to Edom, right? I mean, you had peace in the land. Israel... uh, fell into idolatry, which we're going to talk a lot about today, and then God punishes them by selling them to the Edomites. In Edom, they cry out, and what happens? Well, God sends a judge, Othniel, right? So he raises up Othniel. And then same thing for Moab, right? After they fall into idolatry yet again and serve false gods, he sells them into slavery at the Moabites. They cry out. God raises up a deliverer, Ehud, right? And then there's peace in the land again. And then from peace in the land, Israel does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. God punishes them by selling into slavery now to the Canaanites. This is where Deborah and Barak come in. So in that midst of that slavery, God raises up the judges, right? Deborah and Barak. 
and Israel is delivered from their slavery, um, returning to peace under them. And um, again, peace means, uh, once again, hearing the word of, of the Lord spoken to them and confessing the name of the one true God, uh, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but who is known right now, more poignantly, by the, the one who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this is the, the kind of mantra. Before, is this house of slavery it was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? But now we've got a big, significant salvific narrative there in the Exodus and this fulfillment thereof. Well, Deborah and Barak, right, in, in, in all sorts of deaths and things like that, God raises up um, after they fall into idolatry again. God sells them into slavery at the hands of the Midianites, and then you get Gideon and the battle and the confusion, the sword for the Lord and for Gideon, all of these different things that you've seen here to sharper iron at this point. And there's been peace in the land at the end of Judges 8 for 40 years under Gideon's rule and reign. And then Judges 8, where we've just sort of left off, and you mentioned this at the start of um, sharper iron this morning already, Judges 8, 33 through 35, sort of formed the backbone of what we're going to look at today. It's, it's the cycle of it, right? So that whole section reminds us that as soon as Gideon dies, the people of Israel turn again. And key word here, hoard after the Baals or the Baals, right? So the, the key thing that we need to remember in that section is that Scripture is very intentional. The word hoard there or prostituted is very, very specific to the way that this false Canaanite god, Baal, uh, and his relative Ashtoreth were engaged in worshiping, right? How do you worship them? And it it happened to be that Baal, you do a couple of things. It was somewhat multifaceted, but they centered around two things. One, child sacrifice. You sacrifice your children to appease uh, Baal, who is a fertility god and a, a god of destruction as well. So you do that, or if you wanted the fertility aspect and and um, rain, then what you would do is you would engage in um, temple prostitution. There were high places where you could go up and pay to sleep with a prostitute, and the hope then is that Baal and Astra would then see that and then themselves engage in that act, and it would bring rain and fertility along the the land. So these are very, very wicked, detestable practices that the gods have uh, of the land um, are, are known for, uh, engage in, and, and Israel has been warned against time and time again. Well, now, with Gideon's death, what we find is they've forgotten who God is, and they're going back to this Canaanite, um, ancient Mesopotamian worship of the Baals. So they worship Baal, and the people of Israel did not remember. That's how this works. They whored after Baal, right, literally prostituted themselves to another god. And they did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. They did not show steadfast love then to um, Gideon's family, uh, who's also known as Jerubal, right? He did not uh, get shown love that... Uh, he had for the one true God, that was not returned, right? Faith, when we're talking about here, faith in the one true God was abandoned uh, to serve a false God. So that's the backbone of Judges, chapter 8, where we find ourselves. And in the grand cycle of things, I will say this. Chapter 9, we sort of begin our descent. So there was peace in the land, and now we're beginning our descent in that cycle. Israel is starting to do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, and that's where chapter 9 finds us. 
the reminder of the cycle aspect of judges, which is, I mean, we've, I think we've talked about this almost every day on Sharper Iron, but I think it's particularly helpful here because what we're going to see in chapter nine, and we're not going to get all of it today, but what we'll see here seems to be an interruption in that cycle to a degree because we're going to have a leader arise in Israel or set himself up in Israel, I think is, is the right way to say that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it looks like, you know, well, we've, we've kind of skipped some steps, but I, I think the way that you've laid it out for us really sets the stage quite well to understand what we will read in chapter 9, not as a part of the cycle where there's a deliverer who's coming, but rather this is a part of the cycle of that descent, of the falling into idolatry, of whoring after other gods, and and it's going to show itself in this leader that's going to try to set himself up as a king. And and at least in my own mind, because I've I've struggled with how to fit Judges 9 into this broader narrative of this cyclical nature of Judges, but I think what you're saying there really helps to keep it in its spot and not try to make it something that it's not. What we're going to see here in chapter 9 is not an example of a deliverer who is sent by the Lord, clothed with his spirit for the purpose of saving his people. We're seeing part of that beginning of the cycle where they're going down into idolatry and they need to be rescued from it. Is that I mean is that a fair way to, to characterize this, you think, Pastor Philippek? I think absolutely that's a fair way because what you've had up until this point, honestly, except with the exception of somewhat starting with Deborah and Barak and, and somewhat with Gideon, it's been a rather quick cycle. It's been a rather quick turnaround where you've only had a matter of like a half a chapter or less where they fall in they have peace, they begin their descent and do what is evil, God sells them and he raises up. Right, so you have a little bit, and then you have a little bit about that judge. But what judges, after you get through Judges 8, Judges 9 and following, it's not a nice, I would say this, it takes longer to get through the circle, or if you want to take, uh, if you want to take it, uh, it in a different um, a thought process, it's more of an elongated oval vertically. So we're going to spend a lot of time now on the descent and how the kings and are not kings, but the one who wants to be a king. How um, you have not only evil in the people, but now in the those who are seeking to take the place of of the one whom God has raised up as the deliverer. So you spend a lot more time in that in the first part of that cycle, and then a quick cry out, and then you spend a lot of time on the way up. So it's not as quick of a turnaround. It's not a neat and more servile. It's like more of a vertical oval, if you will. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's let's see how that vertical oval starts its way down here in Judges 9, beginning at the first verse. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your flesh and your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berit, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabal, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, 
and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. All right, that's the first nine verses, Pastor Philippeck. And well, what's the what's the picture that is painted in Israel by this first opening scene in Judges nine? Well, I think you can see that after the death of Gideon, the deliverer, and the peace, Israel's not at peace anymore. I mean, this is this is a descent to be sure. They have no leader whatsoever, as we said now multiple times. Gideon is dead, and Abimelech. Um, his name, by the way, means my father is king, which itself is suggestive because, quite honestly, the problem is his father's not king. His father's never been a king. Gideon was a judge. In fact, Gideon, the judge, uh, is now dead. And seeing these things, right, that, that Israel has never had a king up until this point, we need to remember that. They've wanted a king, give us a king like the other nations, and the Lord had predicted long ago that this would happen. He had prophesied back in Genesis 17 that kings would come from the line of Judah, um, kings would come from the line of uh, Isaac and Abraham, right? So we knew that back in Genesis, that there would be kings, but Israel's not known a king. The only king that they've known so far is God as their king. So the fact that he's demanding uh, that a kingship here, when there's never been a king in Israel, is quite remarkable. And you'll notice a couple of other things. Abimelech can see, he's demanding it because he can see that Israel is now flailing a little bit without Gideon, right? They're falling uh, in all these different directions. There doesn't seem to be order. And so Abimelech himself also has, you can see in him, a desire, an idolatrous desire to be the successor of Gideon, to grab Gideon's spot. And this is why I think you cannot see Abimelech, uh, besides just what we'll get into later on, this is the first indicator I think you can see where Abimelech is not a rightful judge that God is raising up, because he is the one who has a desire and is seizing hold of it, of that office himself. So Abimelech, seeing how the flailing is, has the idolatrous desire to be the successor of Gideon, not as judge, as higher than judge, as king, right? Now, if you've, again, been following in the book of the studies so far through the judges, then you know uh, Abimelech has kind of uh, come about, yes, through the concubine, uh, here, as we talk about of Gideon's in chapter 8. But if you follow that descendancy all the way back, Shechem is the capital city of Manasseh, who is mentioned in chapter 1. So this is a tribe that's not mentioned by name. When we start having kings, kings will actually be mentioned by name, like Saul, Benjamin, right? David, Judah, things like that. But we don't even have a tribal name mentioned here. So you have to trace it all the way back to Manasseh to know in chapter 1. And Manasseh was was warned, as Judah was, they were warned when they entered into the Promised Land to either, one, put to death everyone in the land, and that is a judgment of God upon the idol-worshipping in that land. The wages of sin is death. And they had all had the opportunity, and they all kind of knew, and you can get this from, from Rahab as we enter into Jericho and things like that, that, oh, you're the ones who the Lord uh, did all this wonderful stuff with at the Red Sea, and who... So those people have had an opportunity to hear about this, and that's my point. But they've been in the midst of all kinds of idolatry, and the Lord has warned them. He has warned them to go in to conquer the land, to put the inhabitants to death, or to drive them out of this land. He does not want his people dwelling in the land with these people who are in the midst of false worship of false gods, right? Idolatry the worshiping of a false god. So this is what the Lord commands. But Israel, as they go in, back in chapter 1, 
especially with the tribe of Manasseh. I mean, Judah is the first to march in, but Manasseh, you'll see this right away in Manasseh, right after, like halfway into chapter 1, you'll see this, that Manasseh is actually one who goes in and, you know, they don't drive out the, the Canaanites from the land. Actually, um, while they put to death some who die in war, they actually enslave the people. And not only did they enslave the people, did they put them in slavery, um, not only do they dwell with them, but they start to have children with them. And they mix with this nation that they were commanded not to mix with. So they have children with them, and they begin to do what they were commanded not to do. And the result of, of them doing what they did is exactly what the Lord warned them against, idolatry. When you mix with this people who have refused to hear of what I have done for you in Egypt, then what's going to happen is you're ultimately going to fall into idolatry yourselves, and you're going to worship their God. Well, yep, sure enough, Manasseh is this way. So the major city, Shechem, then, that's where Abimelech's mother is from. So given all of this, then, I think you can rightly see Abimelech's genealogy also serves as an indicator here that things are not going to go well for Israel in this chapter. If he's going over to to um, kind of manipulate things at Shechem in, in the tribe of Manasseh, and they're not even mentioned. Well, Abraham, Abimelech's uh, genealogy serves for us as an indicator of how things then, yeah, will we'll go in chapter 9 for Israel. It will be a descent. Things will not go well, and they will do what is evil in, in the sight of the Lord. So, yeah, we see this play out then, right? Uh, we just heard this in his idolatry. Abimelech plots how to jockey for position, how to become king. He makes a wonderful political expedient appeal, right? I mean, it is, it is somewhat brilliant what he says, which is better for you, um, rhetorically, that, that 70 sons of Jerubal, of Gideon, right, rule over you, or that one rule over you? Well, if I, that's how I present it to you, of course. Um, and remember, by the way, I'm also bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Well, of course, it's, you know, rhetorically, it's better that one man, not 70. We don't want chaos. And if one man's going to rule over us, it might as well be one of our own part Manassehites. It might, well, might as well be him. So, yeah, rule over us. Hence, you know, they say their hearts are inclined to follow Abimelech, what the text says. He makes a politically expedient uh, appeal, and, yeah, they see, they see how that would be of benefit for them. But the problem is... Um, <laughs> There's 69 other brothers here, right? So, so how is that appeal going to happen with 69 other brothers? They're never going to let that happen. So what does Abimelech do who's seizing to, to become king and wanting to take uh, power because he is an idolater of power? Well, of course, uh, they're not going to go along with it. So, um, yeah, Shechem gives him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of the false god. Right, so here's here's some money out of our temple prostitute worship stuff. Um, use them. Uh, use this as you see fit. Well, how does Abimelech see fit? Well, he hires worthless and reckless men. That's what the text says. So this is a this is a clear descent, quite honestly, of, of evil in Israel in the face of the absence of the one whom the Lord has raised up to be the deliverer. This is getting bad. They're, they're not only doing evil; uh, they, they're wanting to elect a leader. Who's, who's going to do evil. So he hires worthless, reckless men, and what do they do? Well, how, how, am I going to, um, how am I going to get my brothers to go along with it? Well, I'm not. I'm actually going to slaughter them one by one on a stone uh, until I'm the only one that is left, and I'm going to use this, um, this money that is out of the house of a false god to do it. Hence, things are just really, really getting bad already in Israel at his death. And um, the, yeah, I'll tell you what. Idolatry, the wages of sin, it is death. It's going to end up costing 
Abimelech and costing Israel very, very dearly. The wages of sin is death. So it is, it is starting to get really bad already in Israel. It, this is a really ugly scene. And and as you've already set the stage for us, Pastor Philippic, and unfortunately your text doesn't get you all the way there, but the, the chapter, it has an ugly beginning here, and it doesn't have a pretty ending. It, this this will continue down the trajectory that has been set here. But I, I think the key in everything that you've said so far in laying out the trajectory is that you've put our focus on the heart of the matter. Abimelech, on the one hand, he's a pretty shrewd guy when it comes to his political maneuvering. There's there's no denying that. He's also a really bad guy. I mean, he's very evil. There's no denying that. But what's at the heart of the evil? It is this idolatry, which, as you said, is where the money comes from, that he hires these worthless fellows to help him out in his evil deed and murdering his own brothers. But that idolatry is at the heart. And I, I think this is something that we can never lose sight of in the book of Judges. And I know I know this has been mentioned before, but it's I think it's always worth mentioning again. Because you get this refrain in the book of Judges. It doesn't show up in this text. But the, the narrator will say, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I think our temptation in our own minds is to think of those words in terms of the immoral deeds. So to put it in the context here, the murder of his brothers, that's the evil that Abimelech does. True enough, it's evil. But the real evil that is in the sight of the Lord that gets repeated by the people of Israel, into which Abimelech falls here and he leads others into, the problem is idolatry. That's the real evil. And that is the evil from which all of these other evils must stem. So, Pastor Philippic, we can spend some time today, I think, reflecting upon this matter of idolatry and how it still shows itself in our world today. Because though we might like to think of ourselves as better than those in the book of Judges, in fact, we are not. So, Pastor Philippic, we got about five minutes on this side of the break to get that conversation started. Sure. So, all I will say is this has been the problem since the garden when um, the woman stretched out her hand, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, gave it to her husband who was with her. He stretched out his hand, both ate and sent into the world through that one man because they desired to be like God, right? And that desiring to be like the Creator, the Creator rather than the creation, is in fact idolatry. So this, is, this has been sin number one for the longest time, and it is the easiest play of humanity, because our fallen flesh is absolutely prone to this. So this is why First Peter, right? Peter talks about this in First uh, Peter chapter 5, his epistle, right? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. So all the while, throughout all of history, this has been the case. This has been the goal uh, of the serpent, right, of, of the devil to Satan to just prowl around and, and absolutely tempt us to be like God. And it's, like I said, in very easy play, because the moment we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can see a change, not just in our actions, um, but even, even, core, even deeper than that, in, in our core, in our nature, right? We who are by nature created to be in a relationship with God, and we're called good and perfect, exactly as God wanted to be. Uh, all of a sudden, um, do things by nature that we were not originally 
given to do. When back in Genesis 2, when God said, um, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam didn't really say anything. So you kind of get this idea that Adam just, yeah, okay, that's your word. That's good. But when the serpent comes and says, did God really say? And they eat. Notice Adam's first inclination when God shows up. It's not to confess his sin. It's not to say I've done wrong. It's this woman, she's a problem, that you put me here with, you're a problem. You're both problems. You're conspiring against me. So what am I going to do? Of course, I, I ate it, you know. And kind of that, that whole idea of, of the narrative, it, it's, it, we've changed. This is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Not only do they defile us, but that defiling is what absolutely separates us from the presence of God, so that we can't stretch out our hand from the tree of life and live. He kicks us out of the garden and place the cherub there with a flaming sword. We are separated from God's presence. Sin cuts us off, right? So Paul, picking up on what Jesus said earlier in Galatians 5, says, now the works of the flesh then are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things. And we're not doing a a 10 o'clock news broadcast here, even Pastor Apple. This is the Word of God talking to the people throughout time, right? I warn you, Paul says, as I warned those before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you notice how idolatry is kind of our default position. It is our default sin. Calvin says that the human heart is a idol factory. Luther says in the large catechism, a god is a term for that which you look to for good and in which we are to find to find refuge. So everyone has a god. And Luther says that, you know, if we could obey the first commandment, and I'm summarizing here. If we can obey the first commandment, then the rest of the commandments would fall into place. If we truly fear, loved, and trusted in God above all things, we would not have a problem misusing his name. We would not have a problem in um, you know, remembering the Sabbath day, in, in honoring our mother and father. All these other things would, would come into place. But because we want to do what we want to do, and because we are so curved inward, our inclination is what makes me happy, right? Man is the center of everything. And maybe this is a co- topic for after the break to, to pick up on, but I mean, this is, this is the heart of it, that, that man ends up being the measure of everything. And I want to talk a little bit more as we have some time here about how that plays out in, in our daily context. But just to simply get this discussion started, this is sort of our default position. Idolatry is. It's, it's, it's in our heart. Uh, and once you once you recognize that, you can't help but see it all over the place. And we will pick that discussion up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 22nd, and we are studying Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. We've got the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippek with us. He serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippek, prior to the break, we were talking about idolatry, which is the root sin throughout the book of Judges, and it's the root sin, it's our default position for us as sinners. And you trace that for us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, instead of letting God be God, they desire to be like God, and they take for themselves that which God had not given. And and now we're going to look and think about this as the default position for sinful humanity. So we see it in the book of Judges. How about today? How do we see this today? Yeah, and we do see it today. I think that's maybe somewhat in our in our minds, even as Christians, that's just a passing thought, like, oh yeah, of course we do. Or to the world, it's like, no, 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 we're getting better and better. But I don't think we spend enough time actually reflecting on what God says in His Word concerning any one of the commandments. We sort of sometimes just pass by it as yeah, it's our default position. So remember, a God, by definition, is that which you look to for all good, uh, that which you look to for refuge and support. So the question I would have for, for us in our 21st century is, when something goes wrong in your life, where do you look to for help? Where do you go to for comfort? Where do you find support? What do you spend your time doing? And I mean, look at how much, when something goes wrong, people will say something like, oh, I just need to, to get away. I, I need to rest and I need to take a vacation. Or, and not that that's a bad thing, but I mean, just look at the, how the normal speech pattern is. Oh, I just need a drink. I need something. What are you using? What are you using and what are you looking for in your time of need? What's going to help you through this? And we sometimes, even as we, as we talk about this, we'll sort of see along uh, as we go here, we'll point out specific examples. But that's the thing to keep in mind. And not only in times of sorrow, but also in times of joy, right? When things are going well in your life, who do you thank and praise? You have a job. Who do you thank and praise for that? I've worked hard. I've done this. You know, I, I've come all this way. I've, you know, look at the speech around these things. So let's take some time and, and look at this. But this is the background of everything we're talking about. So think about how we actually in our speech, if we, if we stop and think about how the world and how we use our words, they're very revealing. We oftentimes care more about our relationships with our family and our friends and our acquaintances than we do about God, right? There's always that age-old adage, there's two things in, in this life that you don't talk about. Politics is one, we'll mention that, but the other, man, don't talk about it. Right? Religion. Why? Because that'll cause a division, and I don't want to say anything to my family, because if I say something to my family about their church attendance or things like that, then you know what's going to happen. Pretty soon, my grandchildren won't be able to, to, to be in my house anymore. They'll stop coming on, they're showing up, and things like that. What, what, think about what's going on. So you're not going to talk about the importance of Christ and his church, the importance of hearing the word of the Lord, law and gospel, because it could cost you your family. I mean, Jesus has whole things on the cost of discipleship and putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. I mean, this is, this is the heart of it. So we often, in, in the way that we do these things, and again, children, grandchildren, gifts from the Lord, but look at the way we talk about things and, and treat them, right? Um, so care about family and friends, uh, acquaintances. You care more about your know, reputation in this world, how you're known. Um, I don't want to be known as, as one of those 
those um, Bible-believing Christians or something like that, right? Because that's that, that means that um, people will look at me and, oh, you're one of those people. You believe this, this. I mean, you can fill in a whole lot of political things, um, uh, social things right now that's going on in the world that we could certainly spend time on if you wanted to. Uh, more about our possessions, right? We, we, we grumble. We whine. We complain. We fail to pray for our friends, families, and, uh, and our authorities, yeah, even our enemy. Our Lord commands us, right? To pray, praise, and give thanks, and need to pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. But how many times are we so selfishly wrapped up in our own little world with our own little problems that we forget to pray for anybody, let alone our, our enemies, or let alone our families, or because somehow we've had a confrontation with someone, right? And I wouldn't, I wouldn't hardly talk to them, let alone pray for them, uh, not after what they've said or what they've done. I don't deserve, they don't deserve my to, to have me pray for them and to have me uh, cast my, the cares of theirs upon the Lord. No, 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 not after they, how they've treated me. We, we will boldly and flippantly, and maybe you know this uh, very well being a pastor, you have people, and I myself am guilty of these same sins, but we boldly and flippantly walk past one another, even our pastor, and say, now, just so you know, uh, don't expect to see me for a while for the next month or something because you know what, it's baseball season, it's football season basketball season, volleyball season, it's the start of deer hunting, it's harvest, it's rodeo, um, it's summer, so I'm going to the lake. And then, like, did you just really tell me, uh, this is great, I'd love to hear the word of the Lord, uh, but by the way, I'm not going to hear it for uh, a matter of the next month or two because I've got this. Do you not see that what you're saying is in fact that you, you love doing this and you, you absolutely are prioritizing this over the word of the Lord and this right now means more to you? Like, this, this is just basic idolatry, right? Or even when you're sitting in church, how many times do you, do you pray the Lord's Prayer and find yourself having a mind that wanders, uh, looking through bulletins, thinking about what you're going to eat, counting ceiling tiles, rather than actually being there um, and disciplining your mind long enough to realize what you are praying and what you are singing, Right? Could you tell me uh, when you walked out of church five minutes, a, a day later, what were the hymns? What was the sermon about? You know, wh- were you listening enough? How did these things get together? I mean, all of this sort of stuff is, is very basic. And we, we want to be loved, and we want to be admired. To give another example, we want to be looked at as the one who has all the answers, as, as the authority on everything and anything. So, you know, when something comes on the news or when a leader says something to us, we scoff, we chaff, we laugh at, we ridicule parents, pastors, teachers, government, because we think we know better. And if everyone would just shut up and listen to me for five minutes, then this house, then this church, then this school, then this country, this world would be a much, much better place. Everyone is ignorant of these things, and they just need to listen to my voice here as I put it on Facebook, as I put it on Twitter, as I'm I'm telling you at the grocery store, as I'm talking to you on the phone. You all just need to listen to what I'm saying, because what I'm saying makes sense. And you, you, what you have, has no value. I mean, just look at this. Rather than seeing the one for whom, the one that you're talking to, is actually for someone our Lord Jesus has suffered, bled, and died, right? They have value because Christ has died for them as he has died for you. You have value. You all have value in the blood of Jesus, right? I mean, this is, this is some of these things. A couple of more examples, um, right? We covet. We want what we don't have. We see somebody else has a spouse or a, a job that we want, clothes, house, health. Uh, you know, they're in better health than we are, a better car than we have. Uh, they have uh, the food. They have money. Uh, the amount of people in the, that they have and families in their church pews, you know, to bring it in the church. And we are discontent. We look around. 
we're discontented. We whine because we don't have enough. And no matter how much we have, it's never enough. And so we complain because we always want more. We, we, we think someone else is more blessed than we are. And we refuse to open our eyes and, and give thanks and praise to God who gives us every good and perfect gift that we have. It comes from him. You know, Pastor Apple, I'm uh, somewhat going to stop here other than just make a conclusionary comment on this. Feel free to add to the list. Feel free to, you know, actually um, draw out specifics with your own or ask me questions. But honestly, to kind of summarize in the words of you know, philosopher Protagoras, right? Man is the measure, right? We are the measure and what we think are the measure of everything. Um, it's, it's, if, it, if I think it's right or good or true, then it must be. If, if I like it, then, then it must be authoritative, right? Man is the measure of all things. In the words of Scripture, that's just called idolatry. So in summary, you know, humanity, we love to think in 2020 um, that we are better, that we are smarter, that this world is getting better and better and better, and people are evolving. But I'll tell you this, you look around at this world, you look around at your own life, and you are just as dead in your trespasses and sin as Abimelech, as the people of Israel, as Adam and his wife in the garden. We are dead in our trespasses. We are blinded by our sin, and we can't even see it, right? Somebody else has to tell us. Somebody else has to proclaim God's word to us so that we may see rightly, oh, that is wrong. Yes, I did do that. Oh, wretched man that I am. Like, somebody has to tell us these things. Um, and when, by God's grace, we realize and come face-to-face with this corruption uh, in ourselves and the world, uh, then at the very least, at the very least, when you are confronted with God's word and, and you see this, it, it's enough at the very least to cause you to weep and lament and mourn. And it's all that, that you repent, right? It's all that you repent and believe not in yourself, not in the things that God's given you in this world, but believe in the one true God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'll stop there and give you a chance to, to comment as you want. Well, the thing the thing that I think is so pernicious about idolatry, particularly as we see it so rampant today, we really do. As I said before the break, when you start to look at sin in this way and see idolatry at the root, you can't stop seeing it. But before you see it that way, it, it can be very difficult to see because idolatry so often starts with, I think it, it always starts with, something that is good, a created gift of God, and putting it out of its place, taking that which is not ultimate and making it ultimate. So as one example, the gift of government is a good gift of God from the fourth commandment. God gives us authority. He gives us order in our lives in order to care for us. And so it is is right that, as the scriptures teach, we respect those in authority over us. We pray for them. We, we act for their benefit. We love them, honor them, cherish them, serve and obey them. I don't think I said this in the same order that the catechism does, but those are the, <laughs> no, those are the okay. verbs, right? So yeah. the government is good, but when we make it an idol— we take that which is good, and we, we make it, we use it for evil. And so, just as an example, when we get really, really angry at our government because they didn't take whatever steps we think they should have taken in order to avoid the threat of pandemic, and things don't go the way that we want them to go in the way of the pandemic, we get really angry and we blame that problem on the government. 
Have we made the government into an idol? I'm not suggesting that we always have when, when we disagree with the government. But when we're constantly watching the news and arguing about what our government should or shouldn't have done, or which candidate is good and which candidate is bad, again, I'm not suggesting that, that we shouldn't be involved in these things. But when we make those things ultimate, and we react with such anger and vitriol toward them as if we expected them to solve all of our problems— well, then I think that takes us back to that diagnostic you gave us, Pastor Philippe, that comes from Luther. Where are we looking for help? Where are we looking for security? If it's not God, then we've set up an idol. And if, if we're not at all willing to examine our hearts at least, I know these, com- these questions are, are uncomfortable. And, and as you said, I mean, these are questions like it takes someone else to point it out to you. I can't tell you how many times where I've started to think and like, oh, that person's got that idol. And then I, Lord, thanks be to God, he, he leads me to pause and say, yeah, but what are your idols? Where do you not see it yourself? And and right. I mean, if, if we're not willing to take that moment and, and say, yes, I am in danger of making this an idol or I have made it an idol. Then what are we doing? I mean, yeah. So I, feel free to respond to that, Pastor Philip Beck. I could spend a lot of time talking about idolatry because, like I said, when you start to see it, you see it everywhere. Yeah, and, and what you said, I think, gets it. Um, just you know, to kind of summarize it in what I've said and replace it in your words in the midst of what I had said uh, before. Uh, this is what I mean when I say, if everyone would just shut up for five mes- minutes and listen to me and my ideas and what I think is right and good and true, then that my house, then the church, then the world, then the school, fill in the blank, would be fixed. Yeah, but see, the fact is, you see yourself as, and, and your view as having the right answer that will solve everything. You are not the savior of the world. The government is not the savior of the world. They're God's representatives, a particular parent. So it doesn't matter. Um, who you elect, it doesn't matter what parents you have. Um, yeah, there's going to be good things and bad things that come out of that, and, and leaders will do uh, better. Some leaders will do better than others. But the ultimate thing is uh, don't put your trust in men. And that's what we're really going to come back to, because men fail you. Put your trust in the Lord, the one who never fails, whose word endures forever, the one who became flesh for you and for your salvation. There is only one sa- Savior. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Right, right. And just one, just very briefly, because I think you brought it out well, whenever we have an idol, ultimately the idol ends up being ourselves. Because in one way or another, we're telling God the way that you designed it, the way that you ordered it is wrong. So, I mean, our anger against the government or our idolatry of family in some way, shape or form, we end up making ourselves the idol. But the fact is, I'm not God. I'm not the Savior, and, and thanks be to God, because he does a much better job of it than I ever could. So with, with, that, with that, Pastor Philippeck, let's, let's jump to the rest of the text. The, the rest of the text sure. here in Judges chapter 9 is, is now coming back to something that we, we skipped over a little bit. Ab- Abimelech does not get everyone of his brothers. One of them escapes, and we're not told exactly how. It just says that Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, hid himself. And now... Well, that, that's going to come back and, and bite Abimelech a bit, as we might expect. So the rest of the text deals with this Jotham. We're in Judges 9, beginning at verse 7. So this is right after Abimelech has been made king at, at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, 
Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt with dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Drobabal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Be'er and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. That's the end of our text for today. That's Judges 9, that was verses 7 through 21. So, Pastor Philippek, Jotham, this brother that was not killed, comes, and now he's going to address the people, and he preaches a, a sermon almost, it seems. He, he uses a parable. So, what does Jotham yeah. do? What does that parable mean? Yeah, so I think the nice thing about this parable is one that gives, that an interpretation is given. I mean, Jotham certainly does the parable, he says it, and then he interprets it for the people. So in some respects, it is self-explanatory, but we're going to go through some of the highlights of this to see the, the nuances thereof. So remember what we had been previously saying. Nobody can see the sin that dwells within them. It's not like repentance is like a 12-step program where, everybody think, where I think, number one, I need to see my sin. Okay, I'm going to think long and hard about my sin. Ready? Okay, there's a sin. I've got it. Now I'm supposed to be sorry for my sin. So now I'm going to see if I can work up my tears and over that, okay, now I'm truly sorry because i got a tear. And now i got to say, no, it's not a 12-step program. It, you, he, you know your sin because the word of the, the perfect word of God, the law is proclaimed to you. So the only way you know your sin is against the mirror of God's law. And that's what Jotham does. It, from outside of them, right, from outside of them comes a word from the Lord to them and what they have just done in their actions and what they are the result of all their actions is going to be. So, so Jotham gives them a word then in accordance with uh, the commandments of the Lord. And this word runs in the way of a parable. And the interesting thing about the parable is it's kind of following the trees. Like, who are these trees, right? And we go olive trees and fig trees. So he'll later go and talk about how all of these are, are rulers. These are the rulers. Like, go to this person, rule over us. They won't rule over us. Finally, go to the bramble. Well, what is a bramble? <laughs> a bramble is, we go from olive trees to fig trees, right? So we get this great olive tree that's known, and this fig tree that's a little less majestic than the olive, and, and so on and so forth. Still beautiful. So we get to this almost worthless bush. So you get this. You get these trees. Okay, you get tall trees, Israel, saying to a 
a worthless bush, Abimelech. By worthless, we mean one who is so steeped in his sin and bent on idolatry. Israel says to this sinner, rule over it, to this bramble. And what's the result of that going to be? And that's the heart of his, sin, of his parable. So what is it, what's going to happen if you say to a sinful idolater who does not actually follow what the Lord did when he raised up Gideon? who's not following in the faith of Gideon, who's not following um, by confessing the true name of God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, what do you get when you place your trust in someone who wants power so desperately that they're willing to slaughter their brothers, of which, by the way, I only narrowly escaped, right? So what do you get when you say to the bramble, trees, you get a bunch of bramble. I mean, that's kind of what's, what's going to happen here, is in this king is going to now be the descent of Israel. So he says to them, look, if you've done this, if you've done this, and this is in accordance essentially with the word of the Lord, if you've done and honored Jerubbaal, right, my, my father, Gideon, and his faith and all that God had done through him, if you honored him, then you know what? Essentially, it'll go well with you. Then, you know, long live of Amalek, so to speak, right? Long live you guys. But if you have dealt um, as a dishonor to Gideon, and not that, you know, like, Gideon's the man or something. But no, what God, is, what God did was grant 40 years of peace. And now Gideon, as we know, has his own problems of idolatry and things like that. But 40 years of peace and of Israel calling upon the name of the Lord. So if, if Abimelech is in accordance with that, then long live Abimelech. But if not, I'll tell you what, then have the fire come out and devour not only the bramble, have the fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars. Devour the, you know, devour the faithful, quote-unquote, of Israel who are now going to be turned to idolatry by an idolatrous leader that they've selected. And this is where he lets the parable sort of sit with them. He just, he lets it sit because he knows the truth of it. What they have done back in chapter 6 is they have not followed in accordance with the word of the Lord. They have not clung to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who led them through Israel, and through the Red, or led them through Egypt, through the Red Sea by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, um, who was with them in the tabernacle. He, they are not calling upon the name of the Lord. And uh, Jotham knows that. So if, if you're not going to do that, then, then you're going to get, ultimately, what you've elected. You're going to get a leader who will lead you further away from God, further away from his presence, and further into the judgment of your sin, the devouring by fire. Mm. And, and Jotham's words, as we will see in the coming texts, do prove quite true, as, as fire comes from each, and they end up devouring and killing each other. We'll see that in, in the coming text here in Judges chapter 9. So, Pastor Philip, with about five minutes, as we reflect upon this text as a whole, I mean, this is one of those spots where, you're thinking, man, I can't believe that happens in the Bible, but it, it does, and it yeah. does fit into the larger narrative of Judges and of Scripture as a whole. So how how do we see that, and, and why is that so important as we reflect on this text? Yeah, so if, if this is all you have, Judges 9, uh, 1 through 21, then there's very, very little hope whatsoever. I mean, we have, we have hit idolatry. We have come face to face with the heart of man. We have peered into the heart of man, and it is um, fraught 
with sin and idolatry and the wages of it all leads to that the, the hell of fire, right? So if all you're left with, this has been some pretty hard law, <laughs> Pastor Apple. And if you put it in the larger context of the book of Judges, well, guess what? You don't have much hope in the book of Judges. So in chapter 9, yeah, you have no hope since at the end of the text uh, you have evil Abimelech as king. And by the end of the book of Judges, uh, we have these words, In those days there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what is right in their own eyes. So if that, that's all you have, then, then you have no hope. There's only idolatry, there's only sin, the wages of it, death, that we deserve God's temporal or, or physical in-time punishment and his eternal punishment, separation from God. So if all we have is Judges, then, oh, God have mercy on us. And the good news is, he does. Judges is one small piece of a larger ongoing narrative of God's mercy and love in the face of sin, God raising up a deliverer, right? So the whole problem of the heart of man and the separation of God has been there since Adam in the garden. Sin has separated us and cut us out from God, and what we are coming face to face with is as much as we've been commanded to follow the words of the Lord and we'll live long in the land, we're going to get to a point where it's very inevitable and very poignant that we cannot by our own reason or strength, know God or, or follow him. We are dead in our sin, and it's going to end the Old Testament with God being separated from us again. But the good news is the Lord has a deliverer for us. And he, he comes to deliver us from the problem, not of slavery of Midian or Moab or anything else, but the slavery of our sin, right? We are by nature sinful and unclean, so Jesus has come to take our sin upon himself and become servant and slave of all, giving his own life unto death, even death upon the cross, that we may have what we do not deserve, but what we need. Freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from the devil, with the precious blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us, delivering us from all of these into, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and life with our God, cleansing us from our sin so that we may live with him in his kingdom, serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. This is our hope, and this is one small picture that's going to ultimately lead to the, the one who has delivered us. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. So if I can, if I can kind of summarize, then the entire thing, of, of what we're looking at today, I, I would pick the words of Psalm 146 and 3 and following. The, the point of it is this. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Bless is he whose help is in God, the God of Jacob, who hopes in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bound. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the ways of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. It's Psalm 146, and it, it points to the one who would become king of kings and lord of lords who would ride into Jerusalem to, to give his life as a ransom so that we who are last and least likely to get into the kingdom of God might be made first in the kingdom of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's the deliverer of our bodies and souls. 
Pastor Adam Filipek serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Judges 9, verses 1 through 21. Pastor Filipek, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.